This is an AMI podcast. Hey, it's me, Lawrence Gunther, host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther, heard on AMI-audio. I love exploring the great outdoors with my guide dog, and I want you to be just as comfortable exploring your community and beyond. Check out my show for the latest outdoor accessibility tips, tech, and insights. Listen to Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther wherever you listen to great podcasts. I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. After World War II, approximately 2,500 veterans returned to America having sustained severe injuries in the line of duty. Previously believed incurable, these veterans survived due to significant medical advances and then struggled to find their place in the world. The story of World War II disabled veterans is a story of resilience in the face of adversity and a determination to beat the odds. Sport played an important role in the lives of disabled veterans. Touted as an innovative form of rehabilitation, sport, especially wheelchair basketball, became a game changer, forever altering perceptions of what it means to live with a disability. Today, we discuss parasport and activism of World War II veterans with disabilities. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Joyita Gupta and I'm the host of the program. As we gear up for Remembrance Day celebrations across Canada, across much of North America and Europe, the story of disabled World War II veterans is one that is worth remembering as well because their sacrifice in the line of duty meant that scores of young men in the prime of their lives returned to America, returned to Canada, returned to places in Europe with these significant disabilities. The legacy of World War II disabled veterans is a legacy that we all, as people with disabilities, cherish to this day because a lot of the things that they fought for, employment, accessible housing, recreation, these are things that, yes, we're still fighting for them, but they definitely got the ball rolling. So to have a conversation about this very important and I think sometimes overlooked topic, I'm joined with the author of Wheels of Courage, How Paralyzed Veterans from World War II Invented Wheelchair Sports, Fought for Disability Rights, and Inspired a Nation. David Davis is the author and sports journalist. Hello and welcome to the program. It's really great to have you. Hi, Joita. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. You know, I loved your book. When I read it, it went by so fast. Um, And I have to ask you, because I ask every author that ever comes to the program, how did you come across the story or did the story find you? (laughs) Yeah, sort of both, I guess. Um, I I certainly wasn't on the lookout for it. I, I stumbled across it when I was doing research on my previous book, actually, mm-hmm. which was a biography of Duke Kahanamoku, uh, the great Hawaiian swimmer and considered the godfather of surfing. And when I was doing research on Duke, 
um, I ran across mention of a and and I live in Los Angeles for so so your audience can tell where I'm speaking with you from. Uh, mm-hmm. There was mention of a, a grand resort about 50 miles east of Los Angeles, and I, I had never heard of it. And turns out it was long out of business. But during World War II, uh, or right before, the U.S. government purchased this resort, which had sort of stumbled after the, the Depression, and converted it to a naval hospital. And I, again, I'm just sort of reading, doing the due diligence of research and ran across that one of the very first wheelchair basketball teams ever uh, put together was formed from the Marines and Navy, the, the paralyzed veterans um, who were staying at this naval hospital in the town mm-hmm. of Corona, California, and they were mm-hmm. called the Rolling Devils. And I just thought that was such an evocative name, and I, I said I'd like to learn a little bit more about this, and um, you know, jumped into the rabbit hole. Four four years later, here here's the book. Mm-hmm. And the book opens. The prologue of the book talks about the greatest show on four wheels. And when I was reading the prologue of the book. I haven't even gotten into the, the substance of the book, just the prologue. And already I felt like I was there. I was in the stands watching this this spectacular event taking place. Paint a picture for us. Take us back, uh, you know, through your through our imagination, if you will, about what that what those early games of wheelchair basketball might have looked like, felt like, sounded like. I guess the main uh, visual that you would see uh, were a. Uh, a newfangled wheelchair uh, invented um, and, and, and manufactured in Southern California called Everest and Jennings. Mm-hmm. And these were, I mean, today we would look at them and, and they weighed about 45, 50 pounds. They were sort of bulky looking, not, not very well adapted to, to individuals. But at the time they were cutting edge uh, technology improvements, um, mm-hmm. because uh, as you and maybe many of your listeners well know, uh, wheelchair technology before World War II, before the late 30s, I mean, basically they were lazy boy chairs on on wheels. They were they mm-hmm. were mammoth, over a hundred pounds, um, with the big wheels in the front and the small wheels in the back, and mm-hmm. they were basically made for institutions or or private homes. And the fact of the matter was there was no sense of mobility. Um, you were, as that sort of cliche went, you were really wheelchair-bound. Um, Everest and Jennings were two engineers, one of whom was disabled, one who had, he had uh, been paralyzed in a mining accident. And they came up with these new chairs, which allowed these veterans mobility. And they were mm-hmm. foldable, that you could go, uh, wheel yourself out to your car, uh, open the door, um, hop, muscle your way to the front seat, um, take the wheelchair sort of like an accordion, put, uh, put it together and put it in the back seat. And mm-hmm. with these special hand controls, adaptive cars, you could go to get a job or, or go to a restaurant or whatever. Um, so visually, or play basketball. <laughs> yeah, or play basketball exactly. And it seems um, 
So you're asking, so that's sort of the visual. These these young men in these wheelchairs uh, going around, they could go pretty fast. They had great mobility. Um, and, of course, and it's sort of one of the, I guess, in a sense, ironies of the origin of wheelchair sports, at least in America, being basketball. It, you know, it seems sort of like, well, basketball is about height and about running, you mm-hmm. know, and jump shots and, you know, bounding around. Well, here, of course, you, you these paralyzed veterans didn't have use of their legs. And so um, it, it was a challenge uh, to shoot, and et cetera. Having said that, that was such a great exercise for them in terms of rehabilitation. In other words, strengthening the upper body, the arms, shoulders, chest, um, which, of course, is so important. Um, so the other visual is is seeing these guys racing, and and at that time, in in, in you were talking about the game in Madison Square Garden in mm-hmm. early 1948. The the rules of wheelchair basketball hadn't really been codified. So so these veterans, mm-hmm. I mean, they raced up and down the court, they <laughs> collided with each other, and fell to the to the court. And from all press accounts that I read and was able to uncover, I mean. People were just aghast. They were like, "What? What's going to happen if you fall out of your wheelchair? How? How crazy? How embarrassing?" To these veterans, that it wasn't a big deal. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they'd experienced sort of the worst embarrassment or the worst injury they could possibly have uh, gotten in war to sur- and survived. So, you know, falling to the court and then helping themselves back up into the chair was no big deal. And, and once the audience saw that, they really had fun with this. They, they were behind the veterans, behind these men. Um, it really was the first public display, display of athleticism for people in wheelchairs. And so there was this astonishment and yet also respect um, for mm-hmm. this hard-earned victory. Mm-hmm. And last point I would say is <laughs> just to uh, put a punctuation on you know, back then everybody was smoking cigarettes and cigars in these arenas, <laughs> so that was the cloud overhead was just cigarette smoke uh, and so forth. But uh, something we wouldn't have today. <laughs> no, it's true. If you look back to even like movies or films from even the fifties and the sixties, everyone's smoking up. You know, it's not a big deal. <laughs> um, let me ask you a little bit about the press because uh, I was going to get to it later in our conversation, but since you brought it up now they did get a lot of press coverage and indeed a lot of the story of wheelchair basketball those early days i think is is you recounting um media reports and the press recounting of these events how did the press treat these veterans uh was it stories of inspiration and hope uh were some journalists a little condescending what was the tone of the coverage yeah, it was it was both, and uh, that to me was fascinating. And I I I, I wish I'd, I in some ways had more space just to expound on that. But it, it was fascinating. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, there was deep respect. Um, about two weeks, or maybe a little less than than that, after that game in Madison Square Garden, Newsweek magazine put one of the players, Jack Earhart, on the cover. And he was sitting in a wheelchair in his basketball uniform, you know, uh, about to throw a pass. And this is a full-on color, you know, of one of the major American uh, magazines, Newsweeklies. And it 
it was astonishing. I mean, to think about that just a few years previous, the president of the United States, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, mm-hmm. um, you know, he had had polio when he was a, a young man, and all the years he was in the White House, he would get around on a, in a wheelchair. But publicly, he never allowed himself to be photographed, mm-hmm. or very, very rarely in a wheelchair. And when he would have to make public appearances, he would, you know, put on these ungainly metal braces that would basically prop him up, and he'd lean on his son to get to the podium, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Newsweek cover was was sort of astonishing, um, even though it wasn't an action shot per se. Um, so there was that. There was respect, and that was in part, I think, the reaction to World War II to to all of the veterans who came home, you know, Amer- mm-hmm. and probably in Canada as well, in England and, and so forth, um, the, the veterans who came home and the wounded veterans were treated with a lot of respect. And hey, you had helped, you know, sort of save the world from fascism and the Japanese empire, that sort of thing. And here you had this co- cohort of young men in, in the United States, about 2,500 paralyzed veterans. And it was both a unique story, just a, and yet also, uh, you know, heartwarming. Um, as you, you mentioned, the word resilience, and I, I think that's an important word for them. And so mm-hmm. everybody covered these guys. The Communist Daily Worker newspaper covered them. Mm-hmm. Um, women's Magazine covered them because there would be a sort of an "I told you so" from a, a wife of a paralyzed veterans and. You know, it wasn't maybe as explicit as it would be today, but she recounted, um, you know, her love for her husband and, you know, their activities and that sort of thing. So it was a wide range. And yes, there were condescending and and I would say ignorant headlines as well and and Mm -hmm. coverage, you know, you know, men without legs. And it's like, no, no, they actually have legs. Um, they, They just are not able to use the legs. So there was very there was some distortion of the headline writers. Maybe they just didn't understand uh, paraplegia at the time. My name is Joy Thagupta, and with me is the author of Wheels of Courage, David Davis. You know, one of the things that people don't realize, because I think parasport has received a lot more exposure today. I mean, some would argue not as much exposure as it should, but people don't realize that the very concept of wheelchair basketball arose at this time that before um, the 1940s there was often a perception that your life was basically over if you happen to have paraplegia and that there wasn't a lot available in terms of treatment tell me about some of the changes in thinking that occurred within the medical profession because I think it is a very fascinating idea because that, that, that these people who were believed to not even be able to live or have a good quality of life. We're now suddenly playing wheelchair basketball. Yeah, before World War II, if if you had uh, were in a mining accident or if you were wounded in World War One, um, your life was well. If you survived, you were lucky. Um, mm-hmm. the, the the statistics of World War One were something like. Eighty percent of those who were paralyzed were were dead within about eighteen months, and and most of that was because of sepsis, disease, etc. Et, et you know, kidney failure or, or uh, bed sores leading to death, and that was because there were no there was no penicillin, there were no sulfa drugs, which 
become, which are developed in the 30s and then as in World War II, they're used um, extensively. And so, whereas before, you know, these men were considered no-hopers and dead-enders, now in World War II, they're going to survive. Yes, they're injured and their lives, you know, are radically, are going to be radically different, uh, but they are going to survive. And in the U.S., there was quite a, a, you know, what are we going to do? And in Canada as well and England, what are we going to do with these young men? And there was a great effort, and I, I really tip the, the, the countries sort of unified behind their, their, their medical experts. Um, they did an extensive rehabilitation, both physical, vocational, in other words, retraining men uh, to do jobs. For instance, like watchmakers and watch mm-hmm. repair was, was a big deal. And that extended to sports and recreation. And it was under the guise of how do we help these young men adjust to a new normal? Because Mm -hmm. obviously many of them were uh, under uh, feeling depressed. They had lost function, independence, opportunities. And this was a way of saying, hey, you know, there is hope. Um, Sport is one of that you know, so normative, you know, especially with young men who maybe played high school based basketball or football or college sports. And, and again, it was also, it was, so it was in the guise of medical rehabilitation, uh, along with your exercises, hey, let's play some ball. And again, it, in, so in England, you would have, uh, they started to do archery. Um, and that was sort of the same precept of strengthening the arms, the shoulders, the chest, um, to, to help with function um, in, in wheelchair and, and the new normal life. Um, and uh, same in Canada. Uh, there was a spinal cord unit at the Lindhurst Lodge, um, part of the Christie Veterans Hospital in Toronto, set up by Canada's uh, Department of Veterans Affairs. So you, you had this uh, all over. Mm-hmm. No, it's really interesting because one of the things that uh, that came out of this moment in history is the activism of uh, paraplegic veterans to ensure equal employment. You alluded to watchmaking as being one of the ways in which they could gain uh, they could be gainfully employed. Also, things like accessible housing. They were not unfamiliar in the halls of power in Washington. Talk to me a little bit about how veterans got organized as paraplegic veterans with specific issues and what the legacy of their activism is. Right. The men, very early on, 46, 47, formed an organization called the Paralyzed Veterans of America, an organization that still exists today, uh, both as a lobbying group and as a research organization. They, they fund research on paraplegia. Um, and all of these, all of these, and these were organized in the, veter- the VA hospitals here in the States. There are about seven or eight spinal cord injury units. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the uh, first, uh, the pioneering wheelchair basketball team was called the Flying Wheels. They were out of Southern California, San Fernando Valley. They would, uh, every year, every spring, charter a plane and play other wheelchair basketball teams at the VA hospitals. And they would go to New York, they would go to the New England, Boston area, and whenever they would come through the East Coast, they would stop in Washington, D.C. and just as you say, they would lobby congressmen and women. They would, when uh, President Eisenhower was, was in office, they would visit with him or Vice President Richard Nixon. 
obviously Eisenhower being a general during the war. Um, and their issues were, as, as you pointed out, adaptive housing. And there was a bill that was passed by Congress, and it, it was signed by, by Truman, so we're talking uh, before Eisenhower. And it was a grant of money um, for each veteran, paralyzed veteran, to build, design and build an adaptive home with uh, ramps, widened doorways, uh, bathrooms that were, you know, of a height that, uh, or bathroom facilities of a height that were, were accessible for the men. Um, we mentioned the adaptive cars. They also lobbied for that uh, so that they got a grant of money to be able to buy these special cars with hand controls. So again, they would have mobility to get a job um, or to visit with other uh, family members or whatever. Uh, so yeah, it was that first uh, burst of activism, and they continue today. And eventually, the paralyzed veterans of America—they they still exist specifically for the veterans—but they started working with civilian groups on on other issues of disability because they had a natural sort of confluence uh, about issues. And one of the the outcomes of that, the the willingness to work with civilians, the interest in making connections, not just nationally, but internationally, uh, is the genesis of the Paralympic Games. Tell us a little bit about how uh, they got the ball rolling on that. Yeah, correct. And that was uh, the brainchild originally of, in England, um, Dr. Ludwig Gutmann, um, also just a fascinating story. Um, you know, he was a German-Jewish neurologist who fled the Nazis uh, right before, as the war was about to begin, World War II. He ended up in England, and he ended up at the at Stoke Mandeville, which was the place for spinal injury uh, for the British soldiers and Commonwealth soldiers, um, including some Canadians as well, before they would uh, go go back home to Lyndhurst Lodge, and. Goodman was a firm believer in sports and recreation. He, he was very savvy, a, a, a self-promoter, uh, but someone who understood the, English, the British psyche and understood that uh, how important sports was in the society. So he's the gentleman who sort of starts these Stoke Mandeville games um, in 1948. He does it. The, the first edition of those games is starts on the same, on the first day of the 1948 London Olympics. So this was Goodman already sort of thinking ahead. Um, and they become international in the early 50s, including, by the way, the, the Montreal Wheelchair Wonders, uh, which was really the first um, wheelchair basketball team in Canada. And they come over to England in 1953 to help make this an international game. And then in 1955, the U.S. team comes over for the first time to England, and um, that was a team actually sponsored, believe it or not, by Pan Am, the airlines, and <laughs> they they bring wheelchair basketball to England. And in short order, Ludwig Gutmann just sees this potential. He, he makes uh, wheelchair basketball becomes one of the key events of the Stoke Mandeville Games. Um, but that presence of the U.S., the presence of Canadian, presence of some European team, that uh, Goodman understands he now really has something going. And the first official Paralympics um, were in 1960. In They followed the 1960 Rome Olympics and 
so you have for that first time uh, this confluence of the Olympic Games first and then something after the Paralympics. Um, it took a while before that alliance was sort of formally engaged. But uh, Goodman, like I said, just a savvy promoter and able to identify the Paralympics with the Olympics in a way that, as, as we know now, are, they're inextricably tied. In the few minutes that we have left, I would love to give you an opportunity to do a bit of a reading from the book, uh, just a passage that might have really stood out to you. Uh, take it away. Okay. I, mm. I just uh, for, for the, your audience and for you, I, I didn't know you were going to lead off the uh, program with the Madison Square Garden game, but that was what I was going to read about. So I'll, I'll, I'll read you um, a passage about that game. So um, March 10, 1948, a Wednesday evening in New York City. The illuminated marquee looming over the entrance to Madison Square Garden promotes the evening's featured attraction. Basketball tonight, New York Knicks versus St. Louis Bombers. Inside the world's most famous entertainment palace, a haze of cigarette smoke hangs over the basketball court. Empty save for two referees in black and white striped shirts with whistles around their necks. A ring of loudspeakers hanging from the rafters burbles with the sonorous tones of public address announcer John F.X. Condon as he notifies the assemblage that an exhibition game between two teams of World War II veterans will precede the main event. What the near-capacity crowd of 15,561 spectators is about to witness is the most unusual form of basketball since 1891, when Dr. James Naismith invented the sport with a pair of peach baskets and a soccer ball. That's amazing. David Davis, thank you very much for being on the program. I wish we had longer to talk, but it's been a real pleasure. Oh, thank you, Joita. Really appreciate your interest. That was David Davis, the author of Wheels of Courage. The book is available as a hard copy and as an electronic book. I got mine off the Apple Store, but you can find it on Kindle as well. If you missed any of my conversation with David, you can find it as a podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Please also head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. We're going to try and put some photographs up there as well as a video of the game that was just described in Madison Square Garden. So we're working with David to make sure that that can happen for you. So please check that out on the show blog. I'd like to thank David Davis for being such an enthusiastic guest. The technical producer for The Pulse is Nasreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio and Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening. Stay safe and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.